Good evening, everybody. I'm sure we'll have more show up as we, as we get started, but let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and have a prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson. Father God, we thank you so very much for another chance to gather together to participate in study of the Scriptures. Father, we pray that you will help us to not only be uh, hearers of your Word, but that you will help us to be doers of your Word that you help us to step into this story by faith, to give our loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus, to follow him, to imitate him, uh, to spread his glory and his name to others. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy in allowing us to be part of this story. Thank you, Father, for all those who've gone before us. May we learn from them. Uh, may we imitate their faith. May we avoid their mistakes and their sins. And may you be glorified in all we say and do today. And every day, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, as always, thank you so very much for being with us in person or online. I'm pretty sure uh, that we're streaming this time. I didn't mess it up like I did um, about half. I'm, 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 I'm about 50% at this point uh, messing it up. Uh, so, so hopefully uh, those that are watching online uh, can participate with us. So again, thank you for being here. Um, we will... We will go over, as we always do in this class, uh, sort of everything that we, the places we've been and the places we're going, uh, because I'm, I'm a big picture kind of a person anyway, but this class is all about the big picture of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and where the story is headed and how this story is headed towards Jesus. Uh, so our class outline, our 11 points have been first is what? Chosen, chosen that Abraham is... God's chosen instrument, and that specifically his seed, uh, who Paul says is Jesus, not seed plural, but seed singular, his offspring is Jesus, that the one that God chose to bring the, bless the blessings to all the nations. Number two is what? Liberated. So after the people were enslaved in Egypt, God freed them, liberated them, redeemed them, rescued them, and brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus. Then three is wandering. So that first generation that came out of Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they disbelieved. They didn't love God. They didn't obey God. They didn't trust him to give them the promised land like he said. So number three is wandering. Number four is victorious. So God brings them into the promised land. The second generation after the exodus brings them into the promised land, begins to give them the promised land led by Joshua, Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh saves is his name, and whose name is a shortened version of Joshua? Jesus. So Jesus is our new Joshua, the better Joshua, who's, who brings us victory, brings us into the promised land of rest when we trust in him. So God begins to deliver the land to them, uh, but is all the land given to them? No. Why? Because God failed in his promises? No, they failed. They, they, didn't, they didn't love the Lord, their God. They didn't obey him. They didn't trust him. And so because of their lack of trust and obedience, the people were like, the people of Canaan were like what to them? Thorns, right? They were thorns to them. And so they continued to plague them. Uh, so next we have the period, sorry, I clicked too soon. Uh, lawless, the period of the judges. So what, what, what phrases keep being used about this period of time? There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right 
in his own eyes, right? So that's chaos. It's lawlessness when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Now, should there have been a king in Israel? There was a king in Israel, but they weren't listening to and loving and trusting their king. Who was their king? God was. Yahweh was their king, but they rejected his kingship, and instead they chose to be, number six, ruled. They chose to be ruled, and they were ruled first by a man named Saul. We talked about Saul and talked about some of his shortcomings. We'll talk more about Saul today. And going on to the next point, and this is really today's lesson, is what? United. So the reign of King David. So David is chosen to reign over the people and he unites uh, the tribes of Israel and reigns over them. Then number eight, divided. So after they are a united kingdom, doesn't take very long and they become a divided kingdom and the, the kingdom is split into a northern and southern half. Then not long after that, then they are exiled. The people are exiled first to Assyria and then to Babylon. Later, they are returned. So they come back from exile and they're back in the promised land, but the promised land still isn't a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Still, they're in need of redemption. And so there is a period of waiting, a period of waiting. Good. Okay. So I want to touch on this idea and we've really been saying this ever since the beginning, but I I really want to be clear about what I mean when I say that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. So what do we mean when we say the Old Testament points to Jesus, or in what way does the Old Testament point forward to Jesus? There's been all kinds of different ways that people have tried to use the Old Testament to sort of tie into the New Testament. Some people have just kind of solved it by saying, well, that must be a different God, or uh, we don't believe in that God, or our God is different, or the God of the New Testament is different. But that's really not only misunderstanding the Old Testament, it's misunderstanding Jesus, because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Um, others have tried to, tried to pair them together or sort of reconcile them by, by sort of saying that the Old Testament stories are allegories. And there's, they, they kind of interpret them as, as allegories or, or as metaphors. Uh, some people try to, to I, I'm not totally against this idea of type and anti-type, but there's a lot of talk about like types and anti-types. Um, even this sort of dichotomy between uh, the physical and the spiritual. I, I heard that a lot growing up, that the Old Testament is physical, the New Testament is spiritual. I don't think any of those are a proper lens through which to understand what we mean when we say that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. Nor do I think that most of the the authors, some probably did have this sort of idea in their head, but I don't think that the authors were were conscious of the fact that, that they were specifically pointing forward to one specific Messiah figure. Um, but, but here's what, what I mean. Obviously, that was in the mind of God since before time began. God knew exactly where this story was headed. Uh, but as we read these, these scriptures, I think here's one way to put it. The authors of the Hebrew scriptures, obviously carried along by the Holy Spirit, seem to be purposefully leaving multiple threads of anticipation dangling. Okay, so that's kind of how I think about it. So I, you, you think about it, a thread that's dangling, you know, something that, that's just, where, did, where is this leading to? It just kind of, in a TV series, we would call it a what? 
a cliffhanger, right? When, when the, back in the old days, before we streamed anything. Um, <laughs> see, I feel older and older all the time. But uh, we would have these episodes that say, to be continued. Well, there are so many threads, literary threads in the Old Testament that sort of be, sort, sort of are like dot, 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 to be continued. And, and you're thinking, well, where is this leading? Because for hundreds of years, these were their scriptures, but there's so much of it that is unfulfilled, that it, it's anticipatory. It's purposefully anticipatory. That there's something that is being set up. And sometimes there's, there's sort of a resolution to it. And you think, oh, okay, I guess, I guess that's what it was pointing to. Like there's a way to read the prophets and think, oh, okay, so the prophets were saying, you're going to come back from exile. But when you read the language of what they say, it's going to be like when these promises come to fruition. When you read those promises and then you look historically about what it was like when they came back from exile and you think, I mean, that doesn't really seem to match that, does it? They talk about this period of time where God, his name covers the world like the waters cover the sea, where, where the, the predators and the prey lay down together and there is peace in all the world and there's children that are playing over the hole of venomous snakes and they're not bitten because the snake is no more. And you, you, So they came back from exile and then pretty soon the Greeks ruled over them and then the Romans and they're pretty much always in conflict and war and they're poor and hungry and starving and waiting. And you want me to believe that that's the, this ultimate beautiful fulfillment of these promises? So they're sort of like almost kind of tied up some of these dangling threads. But if you really read this whole thing, there has to be, there has to be more, doesn't there? And you, you listen to all of the promises that God makes. Because it's very easy if you just read the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, it would be really easy if you didn't know the rest of the story and you just know, okay, these are the promises that God makes. Here are the things that happen to God's people. And then you'd say, is that it? Is that it? God's a liar. That's what you might think. He didn't keep his promises. These people have continued to suffer. What, where, where is the fulfillment of all of these promises? We'll talk about one of those threads tonight, but I bet we could think about several of them, couldn't we? What are some of, what are some of the threads that we've already begun to pull on through this series? What, what's the first one? Our very first number one is what? what, say, what say that again? Oh, the garden, yeah, the, well, there's a thread right there, isn't there? The, the, the thread of the garden. So you, you have them in the garden with the presence of God, and then they're banished, and then they're, they're going to come into the promised land, and it's kind of like a new garden, but then it never really reaches that fulfillment because of their sin, and you think, oh, did they just blow it forever? Like all of these promises, like this was this, was this great, wonderful thing God was going to do for his people, and then it just, it just never came to fruition? It just got totally derailed forever. And so there, yeah, there's one. What's the, the number one on our list? Chosen. Chosen. That, that the seed of Abraham is going to be a blessing to who? The world. the world. All the nations. And if you just finished the, 
you read Genesis through, in our Bibles, Genesis through Malachi, and you finish that, and you'd be like, okay, like when is that going to happen? When is the, when is the seed of Abraham going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world? Because when you finish Malachi, you're kind of like, not yet, right? Not yet. So there's one thread that, that could be picked up on. What is one of the last things that Moses told the people of Israel? He said that there was going to be a prophet like him. And he said, listen, listen to this prophet that's coming. Which prophet is that? That is just kind of a dot, dot, dot to be continued. Who's Who's that going to be? So there's a thread that could be, could be pulled on that's just kind of intentionally left dangling. And I, and I say that because it's not even, we put a lot of emphasis, and I think rightfully so, we put a lot of emphasis on the fact that these authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that this story, this word, this message, these scriptures have the breath of God in them. And we believe that. I believe that. But you don't even have to believe that to appreciate the fact that these authors, even if you just think they were really smart guys that lived thousands of years ago, you don't even have to believe that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to think, what are they getting at here? Why do they just keep leaving all of these threads dangling? Why do they keep leaving them, the people asking, well, what's that all about? Who's going to fulfill that? Who's going to fulfill that? Because if they were just making up this story, if they were just making up a story about a God and a particular people, they would have everything tied off in a nice little bow, wouldn't they? That's how we do stories, isn't it? We, we, we have a, a promise, and then we have some sort of a conclusion. We wrap it all up. But this whole story ends with dot, 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 to be continued. Well, what's all of this leading up to? Why all of these dangling anticipatory threads? So the, the promise about the people being chosen, that they're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. The book of Judges, it leaves us saying there was no king in Israel. So the author of Judges wants you to anticipate what? A king, right? A king. Now, now maybe, that, maybe that author is pointing forward to a king-like David, right? Maybe he's pointing forward to a king like David. But even when we get to David, we still think, okay, yeah, cool. I mean, he's great, but he's, is that it? Is that it? So do you see how all of these threads are sort of created and, and then they're purpose, purposefully left dangling? So here's how I would say it again. The authors of the Hebrew scriptures seem to purposefully leave multiple threads of anticipation dangling. Jesus and the apostles claim that these threads are all tied together in him. Now that's, that's where we come in. And it's, it's our belief as Christians that Jesus is right and that the apostles are right. And that all of these threads, all of these dangling threads that were purposefully left hanging this anticipation that was left hanging that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of these expectations. And, and by the way, the people of Jesus' day were waiting for someone to wrap all of, all of this up, weren't they? Of course, they were baffled as to how one person could really do that. And so there were all kinds of different thoughts on who's the Messiah going to be? Who's, who's this promised one going to be? Maybe there's going to be multiple messiahs. 
Maybe there's going to be a prophet. Maybe there's going to be a priest. Maybe there's going to be a king. How exactly are all of these storylines that have just been hanging for centuries, how are they going to get tied up? They didn't know. But now in Jesus, every single thread has been tied up in him. Every single dangling thread, every single expectation, every single anticipation is tied up in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. Now, that's not to say that the story's finished, right? Because we're still waiting on his second coming. We're still in a period of waiting, but now the the story has been revealed. Jesus, he was the to be continued. He was the, the final episode of the story and everything culminates in him. There isn't a Jesus plus the next guy. It's all Jesus in his first coming, in his present reign, and in his second coming. And do you see how that's very different than reading the Bible as saying, well, the Old Testament is full of allegories that point forward to Jesus. I just, that, I don't think that's what was happening. These are real things that happened to real people, but they were recorded in such a way Because the authors are carried along by the Holy Spirit, they were recorded in a way that was purposefully leaving people with anticipation and expectation about what's coming next, about this story is going somewhere. In fact, tonight we're going to look at 1st and 2nd Samuel, and really 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings are all one story. So we could call it Samuel Kings, okay? So Samuel Kings is one story. Now, Obviously, when you read Samuel Kings, this wasn't written during the time of Samuel, or it wasn't written during the time of David, it wasn't written during the time of Solomon. It ends with the people in exile, right? And so obviously, I mean, pieces of it may have been written down before that, but it's collected and edited and and written down during the time of exile. And it's a story about how did we get here? How did we get here? And where are we going? What's what's coming next? How is God going to keep his promises? So it's not just a matter of history. They're not just interested in recording history. This wasn't just a historical, we got to keep all of this for the record. This is a theological, this is a theological work to say, how did we get here? Why are we here? And how are we getting home? How are we getting home? And David is at the very center of this story. David is at the very center of this story. So 1 Samuel really is a contrast between two kings, right? Which two kings? Saul and David, right? Saul and David. So it's, it's a contrast between Saul and David. And we talked some about Saul last week, but Saul is really the embodiment of human wisdom. The people were the ones who asked for Saul, right? God didn't say, hey, I got a great idea for y'all. Let me give you a king. That's not how it worked. They said, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else, like all the other nations. And so they got a king like all the other nations. And he really is the embodiment of human wisdom. He did what was right in his own eyes. He was a coward. He did not walk in the strength and the wisdom of God. From the very beginning when we meet him, Do you remember what the very first thing, we didn't talk about this in class, but what's the very first thing that we find Saul doing? Even before he's hiding, even before that, when he first meets Samuel, do you remember what he was doing? He was looking for his father's donkeys. 
presumably because he lost them, I guess. And even if he didn't lose them, he still can't find them. And so he's incompetently trying to find his father's donkeys. When we first meet someone like David, what's he doing? Watching over his father's sheep. He's destroying any animals that would attack his father's sheep. He's competent. He's courageous. He's faithful. Saul is none of those things. David is righteous. David is courageous. David walks in the strength of the Lord. Okay, so when we first meet David, after God tears the kingdom from Saul and says, I'm going to give the kingdom over to someone else, uh, we first meet David when Samuel goes to Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem, you know Bethlehem. So he goes to Bethlehem and he, he is told that the future king is in Bethlehem and that the future king is the son of Jesse, not a very you know, important city, not a very important family. And he goes and he finds the family of Jesse. And then in the family of Jesse, finally, he meets David. Is David the first son of Jesse that he meets? No, seven sons all go. And God's like, not him, not him, not him, not him. So we, we have three ways that David is introduced to us. First, he's introduced to us, or he's introduced to Samuel as the overlooked one who is seen by God, because God looks not at what man looks at. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And so even though everyone else has overlooked David, God has chosen him as the future king. Now, again, it's really easy to see the similarities with Israel as a whole, right? This is what God always does. God takes the overlooked one, the humble one, and exalts him, lifts him up. So he takes the humble and lifts him up. So he introduces him to Samuel as the overlooked one who is seen by God. And then he introduces him to Saul as the one whose songs can drive away evil spirits. So as soon as the spirit of God is taken away from Saul and given to David, then this evil spirit comes over Saul and he's trying to figure out how to, how to get rid of that evil spirit. And David is brought in to play music and take away the evil spirit. And then after that is chapter 17. That's the story everybody knows, right? David and Goliath. And then he's introduced to all Israel as the one who is strengthened by the Lord to prevail against his enemies, right? So again, even in the story of David and Goliath, we, we see the contrast right there, don't we? We see, again, even in this story, with, with the evil spirit, David has the spirit of God and Saul is filled with a, a painful evil spirit. And then in the next story, Saul is supposed to be the one to go out and fight their battles and doesn't. He's hiding in his tent. He gives his armor to someone else, maybe to say, hopefully when you go out there in my clothes, people will think that you're me. You know, I mean, he, he's sending someone else out to fight in his place. And David goes out and in the strength of the Lord, he prevails against his enemies. But David says, that's nothing new for me. I've done that against lions. I've done that against bears. I've done that against wolves. I've done that against my enemies because I trust in the power and the strength of the Lord. So David is portrayed throughout all of these introductions as faithful and competent and courageous and righteous. And Saul is, is portrayed as the opposite of those things. Now, even after David is anointed as king, and he knows you're the next king of Israel, and the Spirit of God has been taken away from Saul, does David rush in and take over the kingdom? No. What does he do? What's, what's our last point 11 on our outline? He waits. He waits. He patiently waits for the kingdom to come to him. 
He patiently waits, even so much that several times he's given the opportunity and people encourage him to kill Saul, and he doesn't do it. He will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so we sort of have this overlap period where, yes, the kingdom has been given to David, but also Saul is still reigning as the, key, as the Lord's anointed. And so you sort of have this overlap and this patient waiting. Again, that patient waiting for the kingdom is a theme that is tied off in Jesus, isn't it? And so this patient waiting for God's anointed one to take and to rule over the kingdom. Finally, Saul is killed. And eventually, uh, after a period of some civil war, uh, David unites Israel and reigns over them. Now, one of the first things that David wants to do is build God what? A temple. He wants to build God a house. That's nice, isn't it? He's like, wow, I'm living in a nice house and God's living in a tent. That's not fair. I want to build God a house. And so uh, David says he wants to build God a house. Nathan initially says, okay, that'd be great. Go ahead, build the house. And then God says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Uh, so here's some of the things that God says to David. He says, Second Samuel chapter 7, now therefore, thus you so say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Oh, that's good, isn't it? David says, I want to make you a house, God. And God says, no, let me turn that around. I want to build you a house. Now, not a literal physical house, right? What is he talking about? What's that? Family. Fa family. Yeah, absolutely. A, a dynasty, right? This ongoing dynasty of his reign. So his children will continue to reign. So his family, his line will continue to reign as king. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now again, who are we talking about here? Solomon, right? Solomon. Solomon's the, the obvious fulfillment of this promise, right? And so if we keep reading Samuel Kings, we'll see that Solomon becomes the, the fulfillment of this. He is the son that comes from the body of David, and he reigns as king. But forever? Forever? And like in, in what way? And all of these promises we'll keep reading. Um, again, Yes, yes, Solomon. This isn't a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's not a spiritual versus physical. But, but it is, I like to say that, that things are true in a limited sense and true in an ultimate sense. And so some of the things that are true of David in a limited sense are true of Jesus in an ultimate sense. True of Solomon in a limited sense or true of Jesus in an ultimate sense? Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here, he's not, again, he's not just talking about Solomon. Yes, it's Solomon, but he's also talking about all of David's sons, right? Because he says, if, if your son, your son steps out of line and doesn't do what he's supposed to, I'll discipline him. But what will I not do? What, will I, what does God say he will not do? Depart. He won't take the kingdom away from his son, right? Son being all of his descendant sons that will reign on the throne. Again, we know and we believe that this story culminates in Jesus, that he's the ultimate fulfillment of this. But in the meantime, between David and Jesus, there's going to be lots of son of David, sons of David that reign on the throne. And sometimes they're not going to do what they're supposed to do. But God says, no matter what happens between now and forever, your son will always reign on the throne. Your son will be king forever, right? So again, Yes, Solomon in a sense, but also this perpetuation of the sonship of David. Beyond that even, God says about David and about David's son that what sort of a relationship is he going to have with the sons of David? Like a father and a son, right? And, and this, is a, this is a pretty common thing in the ancient world that the God would have as the king their son. This is my son. And, and so God says, Yahweh says, your, your son will be like a son to me. Now again, this story ultimate culminating in Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate son of God. So you could say in a sense, David is the son of God. You could say in a sense, Solomon is the son of God. You could even say in a sense, Rehoboam, I don't want to say that, but you could say that all of these sons are sons of God, but in the ultimate sense, God has one unique, ultimate son. That's what all of these expectations were leading. Because along the way, along the way, again, don't just think about when these words were spoken by God through Nathan to David, but also when these words were written down. These words aren't, this, this ultimate form of these words isn't written down then. This Samuel King story is written down in Babylon, in captivity, to say this is a promise that God, who does not lie, made to David. Now, when they're in captivity, is David's son, depending on when you're talking about in captivity, but Ultimately, when the captivity is really full-blown, is David's son on the throne? At times, no, right? And so you think, did, did we lose the storyline here, God? Like, wait, hold, how did this happen? It was supposed to never end. No matter what we did, this was irrevocable. This was never going to be taken away. No matter what, you're going to discipline him, sure, but you're never going to take away the kingship from the son of David. Look at Psalm 89, because this really, really spells this out for us. Psalm 89. Here's what the Lord said about David's line. 
Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my, with my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and on his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, right? Now, again, if you just read Samuel Kings and you think, okay, this is going to be David. David's going to be the greatest king in the world. And then you read it and you're like, I, I mean, okay, like that, that's what God meant? Like the greatest king in the world? But then you read Solomon and you think, okay, yeah, now we're getting there. But then as soon as Solomon's gone, just everything just, just implodes. Wait, where's this? Where's, where's all this? You promised that this is the way things were going to be. Verse 28, my steadfast love, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But, but, same thing we read in 2 Samuel, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false, false to my faithfulness. God is saying, this is not contingent. This is not a conditional promise. Like if there's a king, a son of David, that gets out of line, don't get me wrong, he's going to get disciplined. He's going to get what's coming to him. I'm going to discipline him, but I am not going back on this promise. This is unconditional, right? Now again, if you stop reading before we get to the New Testament, you think, wow, what were these authors thinking when they wrote all this down? I mean, again, think about singing this psalm. Think about singing this psalm in captivity, in exile. Reading this psalm, praying this psalm while in exile. You promised you promised that the reign, the dynasty of David would never come to an end. Yes, I know a bunch of them messed up. David himself messed up. Solomon, poof, he messed up big time. A lot of them messed up. But you promised that no matter what happened, this would not come to an end. And then when they're in exile, they're scattered. And, and Jerusalem is in ruins. It's, it's shattered to pieces. And you think, God, these were your promises? He says in verse 34, this is God. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. That's a big promise, isn't it? And God promises forever, regardless of what the next generation or the next generation or the next generation does, your kingdom will be forever. But then, 
then that's the promise. And then the psalm continues in verse 38 and says, okay, but here's how things are looking right now. So whenever this psalm was written, the psalmist says, but now you've cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. The psalmist says, okay, here's what you promised. But now you're really, really mad at at David's family. And you have thrown his crown in the dirt. And you don't seem to be letting up. You don't seem to be getting back to the storyline. Because we're waiting for you to keep your promises. Verse 40. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. These words, by the way, could have been said during the reign of David, right? Because there was a time where David was run out of town. But then these words could continue to be said nearly every generation afterwards. God, you promised that the sons of David would not be able to be overthrown by anybody, that their enemies would fall before them. You promised that you would strengthen them and empower them. You promised you'd be with them. But now everybody and their dog is picking over. They're looting his stuff because he's nothing. His family is nothing. His dynasty is nothing. Verse 43, you have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Interesting question. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, and which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. That's our Bible. And that's amazing, isn't it? That that God inspired words like this to say, I promised, and I know it doesn't look like it's coming true right now. I know it looks like I'm going to be mad forever. I know it looks like I'm never going to pick back up this story that seems to have stopped. I mean, it's again, it's like the cliffhanger in the show, and you think, okay. You ever coming back for season two? Like we got to have this wrapped up that we're just hanging here. You promised that this was going to be reconciled. You promised that this anticipation was going to pay off. You promised that the children of David, the sons of David would never stop reigning. Where is the fulfillment of your promises? And again, if you don't have the story of Jesus, then it's still dot, dot, to be continued. We believe that all of these, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? All of these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. 
It's, it's exactly what, uh, what was said. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Amos says that, that God will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. God is going to fix David's house. But all throughout the scriptures, even David himself anticipated one who is greater than him was going to come. Listen to Psalm 110. David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand. So Yahweh is saying to my king, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The New Living Translation says, your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. David says, Yahweh is saying this to my king. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, that's interesting, isn't it? Whose whose son is the Messiah? And everybody says, David's son. And Jesus says, then why does David, who's the father of the Messiah, call the Messiah his what? His master, his Lord, his king, right? Why, why does he call it? Because fathers would never call their son their Lord unless their son was also their God, was greater than them. David, because he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, he even anticipates someone greater than him being the fulfillment of all of these promises that the Lord has made to him. Uh, we're running out of time. Let me, let me skip down to Psalm 2. So Psalm 2, again, again, just think about not just when these words were first said or even first written, but think about all the people that sang these songs and prayed these prayers and read these words and the anticipation and the expectation that all of these words are pregnant with anticipation. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The whole world, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, why do all the kings of the world think that they don't have to live under the reign of the Jewish Messiah? I mean, so incredibly bold words, right? Can you imagine Greek kings or or Roman kings or Babylonian or Persian kings reading these words? I mean, it would just be laughable, wouldn't it? To think that this this poor, pitiful Jewish people, they actually think that their king is going to reign over the whole world? When has this ever been true? The only time this has ever been true is right now. Jesus, the king of the Jews, reigning over the whole world. And the psalm says, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, that there's going to be the Lord's anointed and the the nations of the world think they don't have to live under his reign, but they're, they're, they're doing this. They're rebelling in vain. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is coming a king who will reign over the whole world. And you will not be able to not see his glory and bow before him. This is the hope and expectation of all of the writings of the Hebrew scriptures. And they are all fulfilled in Jesus. So here's how I would say it. Wrap it all up. Jesus is more David than David, more Solomon than Solomon, ruling with an even greater wisdom and righteousness, uniting all the tribes of the earth under God's rule and reign. All of these stories, they're not allegories, they're not metaphors, they're not just a spiritual story with, or a physical story with a spiritual meaning or something like that. These are real people, but the categories that are created around these people Jesus is the ultimate and unique fulfillment of all of these categories that are created in these stories. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus, for his rule and reign, for him uniting all the peoples, for him uniting all the peoples of the earth under his rule and reign, bringing us under your rule and reign. Father, thank you for your kingdom. Father, we long, we long for your name to be hallowed, for your kingdom to fully come, and for your will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for all the fulfillment to all of your promises that are coming true in him. We pray that he comes quickly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.